Welcome to the Annotations Podcast. This episode is all about fakes. And if there's a word most of us are sick of hearing in 2017, it just might be fake, particularly if it's followed up immediately by the word news. But fakeness is historically a topic of both fascination and outrage. Think of James Frey's 2003 book, A Million Pieces, and all the furor surrounding the revelation that it was more made up than memoir. Or even further back, Davy Crockett, the king of the wild frontier, and his famous journal, later discovered to be manufactured in just 24 hours by an inventive lawyer. Or even further back, Thomas Chatterton, the teenaged 18th century poet who famously forged medieval works and got caught for it. In each instance, the question became not only what makes something definitively a fake, but also what kinds of truth make their way into texts that are branded as fake. Our podcast for today takes up these questions in relation to Edgar Allan Poe, who loved himself a literary hoax, and Grace Acton's replications of early modern recipes, each posing questions about what being fake might mean. Even further back than that, though, we want to explore a somewhat revolutionary concept— How to not only recognize, but to enjoy fakes for being what they are. How do we take a fake on its own terms, especially during a time when fake automatically equals bad? And perhaps a more pressing question for our current times, what do we do once we separate something authentic from something fake? As Sophia says in her segment about Edgar Allan Poe, it's hard to parse exactly where the fakeness lies. An episode on literary fakes would not be complete without mention of inveterate hoaxer Edgar Allan Poe. On April 13, 1844, the New York Sun announced, Astounding news by Express via Norfolk. The Atlantic crossed in three days. Signal triumph of Mr. Monk Mason's flying machine. The article declared, The great problem is at length solved. The air, as well as the earth and the ocean, has been subdued by science and will become a common and convenient highway for mankind. The Atlantic has been actually crossed in a balloon. After a detailed description of the balloon's physical features, the article continued with a transcription of passages from the joint journal kept by balloon inventor Mr. Monk Mason and fellow passenger Mr. Harrison Ainsworth. Of course, you know where this is going. The astounding news was in fact fiction, penned by poet, short story writer, and journalist Edgar Allan Poe. Poe was clearly inspired by an 1836 text by Thomas Monk Mason called An Account of the Late Aeronautical Expedition from London to Vyborg, and later republished in 1838 as Aeronautica, or sketches illustrative of the theory and practice of aerostation, comprising an enlarged account of the late aerial expedition to Germany. This real-life monk mason had covered a record distance of 500 miles in just 18 hours in a balloon, and Poe drew on monk mason's experiences in writing the balloon hoax. This was not the first time the Sun had published a hoax of this kind. In 1835, Richard Adams Locke wrote The Great Moon Hoax, a series of articles about a moon landing. Incidentally, Poe accused Locke of plagiarizing his own publication, The Unparalleled Adventure of One Hans Fall, also about a moon landing, which had come out only three weeks prior to the first of the moon hoax articles. 
On April 15, 1844, two days after the balloon hoax hit the presses, the Sun issued a retraction stating that, quote, we are inclined to believe that the intelligence is erroneous. The description of the balloon and the voyage was written with a minuteness and scientific ability calculated to obtain credit everywhere and was read with great pleasure and satisfaction. We by no means think such a project impossible. The author of this retraction is unknown, but many speculate that it may have been Poe himself. The self-congratulatory tone of the retraction, at the very least, seems to suggest it. That retraction was not the end of the hoaxing, for Poe was nothing if not a trickster. Also in 1844, he published a series of letters in the Columbia Spy, a small newspaper in Columbia, Pennsylvania, called Doings of Gotham. In this column, he took advantage of the contemporary vogue for New York correspondences, or travel letters from urban reporters, to make a few bucks, at the same time that he took liberties with and satirized the genre. In his second letter on May 21st, so just over a month after his balloon hoax, he wrote to his small-town readers that, quote, the balloon hoax made a far more intense sensation than anything of that character since the moon story of Locke. On the morning, Saturday, of its announcement, the whole square surrounding the Sun Building was literally besieged, blocked up, ingress and egress being alike impossible, from a period soon after sunrise until about 2 o'clock p.m. In Saturday's regular issue, it was stated that the news had been just received and that an extra was then in preparation, which would be ready at 10. It was not delivered, however, until nearly noon. In the meantime, I never witnessed more intense excitement to get possession of a paper. As soon as the first few copies made their way into the streets, they were bought up at almost any price from the newsboys, who made a profitable speculation beyond doubt. I saw a half dollar given in one instance for a single paper, and a shilling was a frequent price. I tried in vain during the whole day to get possession of a copy. He went on, as for internal evidence of falsehood, there is positively none. While the more generally accredited fable of Locke would not bear even momentary examination by the scientific, there is nothing put forth in the balloon story which is not in full keeping with the known facts of aeronautic experience. For my own part, I shall not be in the least surprised to learn in the course of the next month or the next that a balloon has made the actual voyage so elaborately described by the hoaxer. Again, Poe made sure to praise himself thoroughly without admitting that he was the hoaxer in question. In addition to fabricating purportedly true news, Poe also took real stories from the headlines and transformed them into fiction. One of his three detective tales, The Mystery of Marie Roget, transposed the 1841 New York murder of a young woman, Mary Rogers, to a Parisian setting where it could be solved by his detective, C. Auguste Dupin, the precursor to Sherlock Holmes, by the way. Similar to the balloon hoax, this story is extremely entangled with the journalism of Poe's day. In fact, Dupin works to solve the mystery by close reading quotes from newspaper reports describing Marie, or Mary's, drowned body. 
Although Poe attributes the quotes to French newspapers in the story, he took them directly from the New York papers. According to Amy Gilman Shrebnik, the popular press, penny newspapers sold by newsboys, of which the New York Sun, home of the balloon hoax, was the first, is at the center of this mystery. Srebnik has written extensively about Mary Rogers and the afterlives of her death in her book, The Mysterious Death of Mary Rogers, Sex and Culture in 19th Century New York. Mary Rogers' death in 1841 would not have achieved the notoriety that it did if not for the emergence of a reading public and a popular press, which both fueled and were fueled by narratives of the dangerous city. Part of the danger of the city, as it was understood in the urbanizing antebellum U.S., was women's sexuality, and Mary, a working-class woman known to have previously run off with a sailor, embodied those fears in her mysterious death. The Penny Press inaugurated the tradition of crime reporting, and it expanded the definition of what counted as news, moving it away from the objective and towards the explicitly political. Poe published the first two installments of Marie Roget in 1842, when crime reporters and police had still not solved the mystery themselves. Was the murderer Mary's fiancé or a gang? Poe raced to figure out the answer through reasoning, or what he called ratiocination. But then a witness's deathbed confession provided what seemed to be the most likely answer— Mary Rogers had died from a botched abortion. Poe went back and revised his story. Although it never mentions the cause explicitly, it leaves the possibility open. Mary Rogers, long after her death, was then transformed into the symbol at the heart of New York's debates over abortion, which played out in the pages of the Penny Press. In 1845, New York criminalized abortion, a legal act that Srebnik links directly to the many circulating narratives about Mary Rogers' death. Unlike the balloon hoax, it's harder to parse where exactly the fakeness lies in this story. The New York Penny Press sensationalized the case to the point that it became its own fiction. And then Poe further fictionalized it in an attempt to get back to the truth from which the newspapers had strayed. Ultimately, we can't know exactly what or who killed Mary Rogers. Even if an abortion gone wrong seems the most plausible account, should we care most about uncovering a truth that has been lost to history? The fake Marys and Maries have themselves made a lasting impact on the history of U.S. policing and reproductive rights. And as for the relationship between truth and fiction, it's interesting to note that Marie Roget, the only Dupin story based on a true crime, is regarded as the least successful of Poe's detective fiction. The story starts in 1621. Somewhere in England, a woman named Grace Acton needed to make a feast for a large number of people. So she made a shopping list. It had 200 eggs, 11 gallons of wine, half a bushel of flour, and six swans. None of the swans were swimming. She hired minstrels and servants and had to borrow two dozen plates and cups for her guests. From the groceries, she made three huge courses of roasted meat, fruits, custard, and to top it all off, a peacock roasted served with its skin. Sometime in the process of shopping and cooking a peacock, she handmade a little leather-bound recipe book to hold the menu and recipes, and she pasted in her shopping list. At least, that's the story that the manuscript in the Wellcome Library in London is trying to tell you. 
Grace Acton's leather recipe book is a little odd when compared to the rest of the Welcome's early modern manuscript collection. It's small and clearly handmade. It's only a few pages, although most manuscript recipe books clock in around 100 or 200 pages. It's meal-specific, with a few medical recipes thrown in, whereas other manuscripts are filled with a range of recipes and remedies, and usually organized by type rather than meal, so desserts go with desserts and meat pies with other meat pies and so on. When I first read her manuscript last summer, I thought I'd found a new type of receipt book. While most manuscripts are collections of recipes from throughout a woman's life, here was an example of recipes being used in real time. Grace Acton couldn't afford, or she didn't need, a large recipe book, but she wanted to remember these particular recipes. And so, I thought, I found a well-preserved example of what the process of putting an early modern feast together may have entailed. Except Grace Acton's manuscript is entirely fake. How do we know? For one, the handwriting and spelling in the book are a mashup of medieval and early modern, and none of it really makes sense. The handwriting in the recipes doesn't match the handwriting of Grace Acton's name on the flyleaf, which does look authentic. Many of the recipes in her book are medieval as well. Dishes like cockatrice, boar in egg reduce, and whatever flam points are were definitely archaic by the 1620s, when printed cookbooks full of more simple dishes were becoming available to middle-class households. And in fact, some of Acton's recipes are almost direct copies from a 1790 printing of a medieval cookery book. There are also a few medical remedies thrown into the book, but ingredients like hedgehog lard and boiled mouse seem really far-fetched even for early modern medicine, which did hail the medical benefits of breast milk and dried mummy and fermented eel. The biggest clue, though, is that one of Acton's recipes to cure a cough calls for glycerin, which wasn't discovered until 1779, in Sweden. And the word glycerin wasn't even used in English until 1838. So what is going on in this strange book full of medieval recipes and 18th century chemicals? Unfortunately, we don't know much about who may have made it or why they may have made it. We don't even really know when it came into the world. The Wellcome Library, we know, purchased it in 1931, and the English food historian Ivan Day thinks it was constructed sometime in the late 19th or early 20th centuries from materials pillaged from authentic 17th century books. He thinks it might have even been made as a prop for an early silent film, but it certainly wasn't made in 1621. So now, a fake manuscript sits in an archive of recipe books in a history of medicine library. We are tempted to discount it. Since we can't provide an accurate picture of what people ate, it doesn't seem to have much use. But what can we learn from Grace Acton's fake manuscript? Well, we can learn some things about what people thought early modern and medieval cuisine looked like, or how they wanted to remember it. This fake manuscript allows us to see early modern cuisine from 200 years later, and it means we can ask questions about why certain dishes or ingredients or stereotypes stuck around. What was it exactly about remedies with hedgehog lard and recipes for entire peacocks that caught people's minds in the Victorian era? Today we're experiencing a similar phenomenon with the artisanal, homemade heirloom movement that's going on around us currently. We want to get back to produce and methods of the past, even while we know that we may not have access to them, or that they weren't considered valuable enough in the first place to preserve. 
But if we ask questions about what survived and why it survived, we should also be asking questions about what hasn't survived, and Grace Acton's manuscript is a great opportunity to do this. If she had a real recipe book, that hasn't survived. It was cut up to make the fake book. So that raises the question, how much of her medical, culinary, and social knowledge have we lost because it's simply been cut up and disappeared? The problem is that we'll never know. But Grace's writing was devalued by an early modern society that largely considered women's writing ephemeral and intellectually inferior. For example, the well-known poet and likely inventor of science fiction, Margaret Cavendish, was roundly mocked by her male colleagues for her poetic and scientific aspirations, and a lot of her substantial body of work was considered trivial precisely because it originated from a woman's pen. In Grace Acton's case, when some Victorians stumbled across her manuscript, similarly harmful ideas about the value of women's intellectual products made it easy for him or her to consider Acton's book not worth keeping, and so to turn it into the fake book that's now in the welcome. Now, though, 200 years after that, that we've realized the wealth of knowledge that's contained in recipe manuscript books, we've likely lost a lot of them. Whatever Grace Acton knew or created has been cut and pasted out of history, and all we have left is her fake book. A lot of what we can learn from this fake manuscript is what we don't know or what we can't know. We end up learning a lot about ourselves in the process, how we pick and choose history, how knowledge disappears over time through intentional or unintentional acts, and how troubling ideas about whose work should and shouldn't be preserved make life and scholarship hard for historians of the future. Thinking about Grace Acton's manuscript asks us to think about who is allowed to have authority and how far that authority goes, and what that means for the survival or mistreatment, in Grace Acton's case, of intellectual work. Grace Acton's manuscript may be a fake, but the questions it asks of us as scholars, and as people living in a culture of fake news, are very real. We are only as good as our sources. So when our sources are fake, doing research becomes much harder, certainly, but we're also at the mercy of more deliberate distortions of history, and we may not be able to see them right away. In a way, Grace's manuscript was a good thing to encounter in the early stages of my dissertation. It made me question my own desires for certain narratives. Why did I want there to be a shopping list in Grace Acton's book? It made me think about the different social mechanisms that go into shaping an archive and determining what gets preserved and therefore how all of that goes into constructing a particular meaning or historical narrative. Her book got me thinking deeply about the value of women's intellectual work and the sweeping historical narratives that it could revise. All of these are very important, and they're vital to the process of doing ethical, rigorous research. But I still can't help wishing the story told in Grace's book was real. Thanks for listening. Check out our website, annotationspodcast.wordpress.com, and our Annotations Podcast Pinterest page for links to further information about the contents of this episode. Look for past episodes and catch our next episode on unfinished and controversial literary endings on our website, SoundCloud, and iTunes. <laughs>